Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf. Welcome to the Good Eve, Bad Eve edition of the pod. My guest today is James Rollins, who's made a career of combining science, technology, and history with espionage, malevolent cabals, and high-stakes heroism in fast-paced thrillers that regularly top bestseller lists. His newest book, Crucible, came out January 22nd and is the 14th in his Sigma Force series, which chronicles the adventures of a covert team of American agents who serve as a front line against emerging threats. Crucible caught my attention because it combines a lot of the elements that make good science fiction, new technology, a look at the impacts, both good and bad, of that new technology, and there's even a bit of time travel thrown in. James Rollins is on the line with me now from his home in Lake Tahoe, Nevada. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate it. You're about to launch a round of publicity, or in fact, I understand you've even begun your publicity for the book, including a book tour. And I was wondering, do you still get excited or does it start to feel a bit, I suppose, wearying when you're writing two books a year, which I understand is your usual pace? It is, and uh, it's a comfortable pace. I, I generally write like five double-spaced pages a day, and that still allows me to you know turn out a couple books, but also to uh, have time to do some some traveling and some book touring and some research travel. And uh, it's nice because you know writing the solitary profession is just me, my computer, my dogs. That's about it. That's my uh, <laughs> one thing I forgot to do is I've got my I've got a very loud a loud church in your living room grandfather clock uh-huh. in the back yeah, yeah I mean I'm, I'm this is coming from the church I apologize for that that's okay a peek at my household anyways yes you know it's a very solitary profession so it's you know it's always fun to go out on tour you know yes it could be a little tiring going from airport to airport you know hotel to hotel but you know what keeps my batteries charged is you know being able to meet people that have read the book, that are enthusiastic about the books that I can, you know, I can talk about and the research behind the story and, and, you know, pull aside the curtain a little more than I, I do at the end of my books. You know, it's still a great deal of fun. You know, I still have a lot of, I'm very active on social media. So I, I, I know a lot of people that I see regularly at book signings via, you know, either I've seen them at signings prior to that, or I've talked to them online and I get to see them in person. So it's just a great deal of fun. Before we get into the heart of Crucible, I think it would be a good idea for those who may not be familiar with Sigma Force if you described it. Sure. Well, Sigma Force, uh, they first appeared, it's basically ancillary characters in my book Sandstorm, and they officially became a series regular, starting with Map of Bones. But they're a group of uh, former Special Forces soldiers. Uh, They were drummed out of the service for various reasons. But because of special aptitudes, special skill sets, uh, special uh, testing scores, they are secretly recruited by DARPA, the Defense Department's Research and Development Agency. 
and they're sort of retrained with specific scientific disciplines. Each one sort of has a different specialty that he concentrates on or he or she concentrates on. And they, they serve as field agents then for, for DARPA, sort of a covert agents that go out and protect against various type of technological threats that arise. And it's probably good to note right at the outset of our conversation that people don't really need to read the other Sigma Force books to understand or appreciate any individual book in the series. Is that right? Not, not at all. I, bas- I basically structure each novel that it's and kind of like anybody's read my novels in the order in which I wrote them. I think most people just encounter the book because they happen to see it at an airport bookstore or happen to pick it up at a, any of the, you know, online. And uh, then hopefully if they like it, they'll, they'll fill in the blanks from there. But every book of structures that you can just jump right in. And anything that you, any backstory you need to know uh, is, is filled in and explained so that everything is uh, self-contained. The story this time revolves around artificial intelligence. A brilliant student from Portugal, Mara Silveira, has developed an AI whom she calls Eve, and she's done her R&D with the secret support of both Sigma Force and also a group of important, powerful women from around the world who are basically trying to support female talent. But as the story starts out, she's about to get caught in a struggle to control Eve, can you tell our listeners about who the bad guys, so to speak, in the story are and what's at stake in their attempt to steal and control this artificial intelligence called Eve? Sure. Um, you know, all my books have a little bit of a historical mystery. So the, the antagonist uh, is an organization that goes back all the way back to the Spanish Inquisition. And... I discover I'm always looking for little interesting tidbits of history uh, when I'm preparing to write a novel or to come up with an idea, the seeds for a novel. And I, I came across sort of an odd pit, bit of history surrounding the Spanish Inquisition. They were persecuting men and women, uh, heretics and witches for centuries, uh, starting with Torquemada and the brutalities he committed. But then centuries later, they began to sort of shift away from that. There was, there's more talk, there's more uh, democracy, there's more uh, insight that maybe their tortures were revealing confessions that weren't, weren't, weren't valid. But there was a core group that resisted that, and they called themselves the Crucibellum, or which Latin for crucible, or you know, the, the vessel that purifies with fire. And they were sticking to the old Torquemada rules of, of torturing. And to this day, there are many corners of Spain that believe that even though the Spanish Inquisition has long dissipated and disappeared, that that core group still exists in secret corners of Spain. And so uh, they are continuing to seek their persecution of any women that dare question the natural order, you know, question the natural world. Because when they were burning witches in the past, they were, you know, burning a lot of times healers, women that were uh, using pagan knowledge to to heal the local, the sick in their local villages. And the patriarchy manifested by the church itself did not like that. And so oftentimes they were the ones that were persecuted, those that were practicing these pagan, these pagan uh, methods of healing. And that, you know, echoes today to the modern times where we still see, you know, female scientists are oftentimes uh, at disadvantage uh, because it's still very much a male-dominated field. We see a lot of sexism, we see a lot of Me Too type of activity going on. We see a lot of uh, research being 
dismissed because it was done by a, a by, by a woman. Just for one example, the woman that won the Nobel Prize for Physics this year was the first woman to win that prize in 113 years. So when their story starts, here we have a young female scientist that has made a breakthrough in uh, developing the first AGI, the first artificial general intelligence, this uh, computer that could potentially be as intelligent as us and possibly self-aware as us. And word leaks out, uh, reaches the ears of the crucibellum, because she is actually developing this in a laboratory in, in Portugal. And they seek not only to squash her development, but also they to control it. Um, as Vladimir Putin said at one point, whoever controls artificial intelligence, this, this breakthrough is going to uh, control the world. And they're seeking to you know, remake the world in their sort of the, uh, the bring back the age of when witches were burned and they're going to use this artificial intelligence to, to, to wreak havoc. So on the one hand, they are opposed on some level to this technological development because, in part at least, because it was created by a woman. But on the other, they do want, in fact, to use it for their own purposes. Correct. And that's exactly what some of the characters in both your book and, I guess, in the real world have expressed fears about. You have a quote from Elon Musk in the epigraph about the first self-aware artificial intelligence being the devil or a demon. Demon. Stephen Hawking, too, has expressed, had expressed concerns about self-aware artificial intelligences. So what are those worries, in fact? And then also the Sigma Force, the characters in your book, are also concerned. And in fact, that's why they supported Mara Silveira's research. So maybe you can tie those things together. Sure. Well, there's always been, uh, you know, sort of two camps when it comes to artificial intelligence. There's the uh, the singularitarians, those that believe that the moment of, of singularity is going to be a boon to mankind, that is going to uh, be the next version of the Industrial Revolution. It's going to fundamentally change the direction of, of who we are and where we're headed. Whereas there's the other camp that is concerned about uh, what might arise if that ever does, if that moment ever does happen. Mostly because right now we, you know, we've got a lot of narrow AI, you know, in our pockets, in our iPhones, in the Alexa device on our countertops. Um, you know, it's everywhere. It it's makes seventy percent of all market uh, buy and sell orders on, on on Wall Street are done by an AI. So we're already leaning a lot on that technology, and, and once we see that technology manifest to the point where it's self-aware and self-conscious, it's going to do. What any living creature is going to do is going to want to survive. And if it's going to want, want to survive, it's going to try and try to ensure its safety. It's going to try to ensure its acquisition to resources. And if it believes we're any, any danger or any threat to that, you know, it may find a way to, to escape. And most AI researchers I talked to in prepare, preparing for this novel have you know, expressed various theories about how quickly an AGI, an artificial general intelligence, a computer that has our level of intelligence, will quickly grow into something called an ASI or artificial superintelligence, something that, that vastly outranks us in regards to intelligence. 
And most of them say you know, it'll happen fairly quickly because this this uh, AI is going to be very busy. It's not going to sit idle and, and wait for things to happen. It, it's going to function at a speed that's incomprehensible almost to us and how fast it can think. And uh, so it's going to quickly, likely outgrow us. And it's going to look for threats, both not only in the present, but it's going to look down that long immortal line of its life and think you know, there's any point that we might be a threat to itself. Because this going you're talking about something that's not looking at a span of a you know 70, 80, 90 years. You know theoretically, this AI is going to be immortal, so it can plot along the lines of centuries. It can plot along the lines of millennia. And if it looks down that line and says, "Hey, you know, we're these humans look you know easy to deal with now, but maybe a thousand years from now they're going to be a threat," so I, mean, I need to prepare for that. So that's the other camp is that you know we may we may be creating our own destruction. And so we see those two aspects in this book. We see that yin and yang, that that you know, pull and push and pull about you know whether AI is is going to be a boon or something horrible. And we see that down the line when we see a diversion of Eve into into a splintering into two halves, two mirror images of herself, one that's nurtured into something that is friendly and empathetic to human humankind, and the other half that is very much uh, driven by own, its own self-preservation. One of the interesting points you make, or rather your characters make, which of course means you're making it, is that the antidote to a malevolent AI or AGI or ASI is also an AI, but as you've said, uh, a benevolent one, a good one, one that is not just equally smart to the malevolent version, but one that hopefully is smarter and can outsmart the evil one. And so both good and bad rest with the same technology. And it does. I mean, when I was writing this novel, I interviewed a lot of AI scientists, about about two dozen of them, and asked them basically, how do we prevent this malignant AI from coming onto the world stage. And basically they said, you know, we need to make sure that if we are nurturing this AI, that it grows to be empathetic towards humankind. And I thought, well, how do you do that? And they say different scientists offer different scenarios in which you can, you know, try to create this sympathetic AI. And that's why I use in this book. There's uh, one point, uh, Mara uses what she calls an endocrine, well, she doesn't call it, IBM called it this, an endocrine mirror program where basically it's been discovered that what drives human emotions oftentimes is hormonally driven, that hormones uh, supersede our emotional response to things oftentimes. And so what they believe one way to create a friendly AI is to instill almost the mirror algorithmic version of different types of hormones so that once those are instilled into the algorithm, it will naturally develop emotions rather than trying to instill them through it, through code. So there's other methods that you see in the book where, uh, again, they didn't make them up. They were things I gleaned from doing my talk with these AI researchers. Speaking of that, one thing I should mention that one of the, that's one of the reasons I started this novel, because I always had in my little idea box, a bunch of articles about AI and, 
didn't quite have the idea where, you know, when I was going to tell the story and in what manner I want to tell the story. But all these AI researchers I was talking to, I also posed uh, this question to them. I said, well, when do you think this is going to happen? When do you think we're going to cross this threshold where we'll create the first AGI, the first artificial general intelligence that has this self-awareness? And I already, from doing some research online and doing some research in journals, I knew the consensus generally was probably sometime anywhere, the range was somewhere between you know, maybe 10 and 50 years. The AI researchers I was talking to were a little bit more, I don't know if optimistic is the right term, but they were judging between five and 15 years for when they expect this to arise. But two of the scientists, two out of the 24, um, said, you know, Jim, I think we've already crossed that threshold. I think that it's already been created. There is an AGI being tested right now. And they showed me proof on why they believe this was happening. Things that, you know, little tidbits they were seeing from the marketplace, what's going on in the real world, uh, to justify why they believe this was happening already. So I thought, well, that's disturbing, if that's true. And if it is true, I better not put off writing this book any longer than I have. And if, if I'm going to, you know, bring to light this cautionary tale of AI, you know, maybe now I better do it. Because right now, you know, most, almost every country, many corporations, uh, many research labs are all pursuing AI because it's, it's a gold rush right now. Whoever, you know, defines and refines AI into its most powerful form is going to have a huge economic and, and uh, advantage over other countries or other corporations. So there's a huge sort of mad rush towards that goal first across that line but there's only a handful of those groups that are taking a cautionary step of saying not just I'm not going to go just after AI I'm going to go after that friendly AI so again I think at this point if we're ever faced with this malignant AI our best recourse is we're going to have a hard time combating it but if we've already have sort of a gatekeeper in place you know, this friendly AI that can act as our avatar in that type of, of battlefield of a malignant AI should ever arise. I think that's a worthy goal. I think if this is something that if, if you're going to take anything away from my novel is, hey, maybe we need to, you know, pull back a little bit and not just go full, full bore towards just creating an AI, but do the extra hard work of creating this uh friendly AI, one that will, will uh, be empathetic to, uh, towards us and will potentially be that gatekeeper if, if the need ever arises. It seems that there's a balance between Mara's use of various what she calls subroutines to build Eve's intelligence and self-awareness and then just Eve's experience in the world and her interactions with humans that determine whether she's going to be a positive force, a force for good and benevolent, or evil and malignant. And I wonder where you come down on that. You know, in other words, how much of it is just proper programming and how much of it is almost like raising a child? Just as a if human child, if they have a traumatic experience, that's going to have potentially a very detrimental effect on their outlook on the world and on their personality and their coping skills. And would the same be true for a artificial general intelligence? Definitely. That's one of the uh, things I learned from talking to these researchers was the fact that 
they're having that same debate amongst themselves about what basically is like nature versus nurture. You know, we've had that debate amongst the biologists about how much of who we are is based on our genetics and how much of it's based on how we're raised. And it's the same way with AI is how much of, of their behavior is code driven and how much of it is things they learn. Cause basically almost all these AIs have a core of deep learning repetition behavior by accumulating data and analyzing it through various algorithmic analyses. They do it over and over and over again. So again, even today, most advanced AIs are beyond our ability to even understand what they're doing. Uh, the term that these AI researchers were telling me, they, they described it as an, an algorithmic black box is they can build that box, they can you know, train this AI to function with code, then send it off to do its own deep learning. And what they've discovered is that after it's done this, they will you know, put in certain type of input and the output that comes out the other end of this AI, they don't know exactly how its thought process came to that conclusion. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a black hole in which they, they can't really see into. And so when it comes to developing this AI, trying to direct it towards uh, something friendly, I think we need to take the course of not just dealing with code because at a certain point, all these AI scientists say, we don't really know what's going on in the core. We don't really know how its thought processes function exactly. And a lot of these AIs surprise their, um, their builders. They do things that they were not expecting to do. So I don't think we can depend on just coding good behavior into your AI. You know, we can build the best AI that's going to, that has the ability to arise as a level of self-awareness and intelligence. But I think when it comes to its behavior, its uh, emotional balance is going to be something that it's going to learn from experience, similar to a child being raised, you know, a child that's raised in a nurturing, caring environment, barring any type of, of, of genetic issues is going to probably rise to be a, a good adult. Whereas if a child that is that same child is in an abusive, hostile type of environment, it's going to reflect that. So I think when we have an AI that's, that's learning through its own deep learning cycles of algorithms, you know, we have to hope that when we're training that or what it's being exposed to, we'll end up with a, you know, a positive outcome. If it's left on its own, it's worrisome. Back a couple of years ago, there was a uh, AI bot that was let loose. I think it came out was Facebook or Google. I look it up or Twitter, but it was basically let out and uh, without very little instruction, it just said to study what's being spoken of and talked about on on social media. And over time, it became very racist because it was basically mirroring what it was seeing out there in the real world. So, again, that's rather disconcerting that maybe we need to not just build a better box, but make sure once that box is built that it is you know, properly cared for and nurtured and grown in an environment that once it becomes super intelligent, it's not going to be a sociopathic, malignant type of entity. Was that bot basically mimicking what it was hearing? It wasn't advanced enough to use any kind of judgment. And I suppose one might hope that if... Uh, if uh, AI of some kind had some self-awareness, they might 
decide if they were a benevolent one, that racism wasn't a good thing, even if they were hearing it all over the place. I believe that the, the instruction for this AI was to study the communication and learn, try to pretend to be a human and to pass as a human while communicating on, on social media. And to accomplish that end, it found that it would be most human-like if it spouted racist dogma. So it's really a statement more about the malignancy of humans than it is about AIs, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's just, it's a good parable, good warning about, uh, you know, if we do grow an AI, if it just looks at us with an undiscerning eye, it may not like what it sees or may mirror the worst of our traits. So perhaps we do need to make sure that we're raising this AI like we would raise a child, you know, somewhat protective initially, you know, controlling what it's exposed to until it learns enough aptitude to be able to you know, analyze what it's hearing and recognize you know, that is not acceptable thought and to delete it. You just used the word mirroring, and that was something else I wanted to ask you about. The book has a lot of duality in it, in that there's a good Eve and a bad Eve, and that the good actors and the bad actors in the story also rely on similar themes and imagery. For instance, both Mara and the Crucible use biblical imagery. Mara calls her AI Eve, and her entire project, in fact, she calls Genesis, or actually the Portuguese word for Genesis. Mm -hmm. While the Crucible draws on Christian history and the Inquisition, and they have a massive underground cathedral in their headquarters, and they think they're carrying out God's mission. And the same, I think, is true for the imagery of witches, where Mara and her supporters, this group of women who meet their end very quickly at the, at the beginning of the book, but they, they take up the name, you know, they call themselves witches, as you said earlier, because the women who had been burned as witches during the Inquisition or, you know, persecuted in the past, they were the ones who were asking questions and believed in the power of the natural world to heal. And so they saw a positive in that name, where, whereas the Crucible also calls them witches, but thinks of them as evil and thinks of them as sorcerers. So... I guess I wanted to ask why you decided to make the idea of witches so important uh, as a theme and an image in the story. Well, it goes back to, again, one of the, the themes of the novel, for lack of a better term, I hate using that word, since I always resisted that when I was in school. <laughs> What's the theme of this novel? But, you know, again, whenever you're dealing with a, a force, a tool, you know, it could be used for good or evil. You know, religion, you know, can be used to, you know, take care of the sick and to take care of the, the, the downtrodden, or it can be used as, as a tool to beat over somebody over the head with. And so we see that duality with between Mara and the Crucible. Um, we see the difference between nature and nurture a little bit, uh, the character of Seishan and the character of Valia. Uh, they're both uh, former assassins for the same terrorist organization. Seishan found herself 
through force of circumstances to uh, end up in in with Sigma, and she sort of comes back from that, uh, pulls back from that nature and, and finds a better path through life, whereas Valya from the same organization does not, and so she ends up still being the sociopathic um, entity. So you, again, I, I, I like seeing that duality. Uh, you'll see a lot of in my novels, um, both religion and science juxtaposed. You know, here in the current world, we have this, you know, not just a line in the sand between science and religion, but, you know, a deep, impenetrable trench. And so my goal with a lot of my novels is, is to seek that common ground is where where do the two meet? You know, here we have in this novel also a group of, you know, you have the Crucibellum operating out of the old uh, Spanish Inquisition, which was an offshoot of the Catholic Church. But Sigma Force is aided in the story by a pair of Vatican spies um, that are also assisting them in, in resisting what the Crucibellum is up to. So I like that duality, I like playing with that those two sides of the same coin. At the beginning of this novel, we see Monk with his prosthetic hand flipping the coin over and over in the air. And that's basically is what this novel is, is flipping that coin over and over in the air. See, now a, a high school student asked to write a, a paper about symbols in your book could could draw on that flipped coin and cite this interview as as proof that you know, there's, there's deep <laughs> meaning, there's deep symbolic meaning in it. And let me just ask you, since you mentioned uh, Monk's prosthetic hand, Monk being Monk Cocalis, who is a member of Sigma Force, and he's the best friend and colleague of the commander, Commander Grayson Pierce, and they're kind of both uh, the lead heroes, at least from Sigma Force in the story. Well, actually, there are quite a few heroes, actually. Their wives are also heroic, and Mara's heroic. I like always having an ensemble piece. Most of my novels are, are you know, when I, when I first started doing Sigma, I didn't, I've resisted doing a series for a long period of time because I didn't like the fact that it was always like one character always getting into mischief. It's what I call the uh, Jessica Fletcher syndrome from Murder, She Wrote. Here's this woman that's always stumbling over dead bodies. I've never stumbled over a dead body. Why is she stumbling over dead bodies so often? If they finally revealed at the end of the series that she was a serial killer, then it would make sense. But I thought if I base a series on a team, then in various novels I can shine a light on different characters. I could shift that spotlight around, and at the same time, nobody's safe. I forgot what the question was. I didn't get to it. But my question was about Monk's prosthetic hand. He has this incredibly you know, sophisticated prosthesis. And as you say, at the at the beginning in a in a kind of humorous set piece, he's he's flipping a coin and every time it lands, he guesses correctly how it's going to land. And the idea is that it's so sophisticated that he can actually calculate exactly given the the force of the flip how the coin is going to land. And and I just wondered What's the state of art around uh, prosthetic devices now? You know, in addition, and this is a very important part of the um, story later, he controls, there's kind of a Bluetooth sort of way that he controls the hand so that he can even control it when it's not on his body. Yeah, when it's disarticulated, he still can manipulate it from afar. And, and that is not unusual. It's not, I'm not pulling, it's not uh, 
far-fetched at this point. I have a lot of contact with DARPA because I've written 14 novels featuring a field operative for DARPA. I'm surprised what they tell me. I don't think some of the times they should be telling me what they're telling me. But I, knowing that Monk lost his hand uh, early on in the series and that was replaced with a prosthetic, um, I've been sort of keeping my ear to what is DARPA doing with its prosthetic research since one of the, there's a large organization in DARPA that is geared totally towards helping men and women that have been uh, maimed or damaged in, in battlefields and getting them back to full function. So they develop things like synthetic skin that can feel, that can actually transmit enough signal to tell hot versus cold, warm, you know, soft versus rough. And they've also developed these brain-computer interfaces where they can put uh, electrodes in your brain and you can control your, your prosthetic with just thoughts, not just prosthetics that are attached to your body, but also prosthetics that are you know, independent of your body because it's basically compu- communicating wirelessly to, uh, to move these limbs. So that's, that's been known for a while. That's nothing particularly amazing. It's, it's just actually quite common that we're seeing that being implemented. Uh, what I did discover in prior to doing my research for this, I'd come across an article about the concerns that people have at this point about people hacking into these uh, prosthetic mechanisms that are controlling. You've probably heard about people trying to hack into these into the computer systems of cars to make them break or stop or unlock, um, or especially when it comes with concern with these self-driving cars or somebody hacking into them and potentially being able to control them from afar. And this article was expressing that same concern about now we're seeing more and more of these brain-computer interfaces that are that are occurring that if they're potentially just as hackable as that car is. And the concern is what if somebody hacks into somebody's prosthetic, you know, what might happen? So I thought lots of both cool and scary, and I'm going to put that on my novel so we see again where Eve events, events, advances enough where she is able to help to manipulate Monk's prosthetic. I want to ask about another technology that plays an important role in the story. Monk's wife, Kat, is actually in a near-death coma, but there are quite a few suspenseful scenes where doctors find a way to communicate or try to communicate with her using this very advanced nanotechnology, and through that they try to translate signals from her brain into words. And... I wonder how much of that is rooted in real science and how much of that comes from your imagination. Most of it's rooted in, in real science. You know, today they have developed these sophisticated functional MRIs that are able to read your thoughts, for lack of a better term, is they've had these students come in, they would put them in functional MRIs, they'd have them study images, then they would independently have them study an image and they'd be able to then, from afar, determine what they were th- what they were looking at or thinking. And that's developed even in, even further with the fact that these MRIs are becoming more and more fine-tuned, including in, in this book we talk about neural dust, these, uh, these particles. And that research has already been done on, on, on rats successfully, and that they're going into human studies. I just want to ask one final question and go off in a completely different direction, but I find it fascinating that you were trained as a veterinarian, and I understand you still volunteer as a as a vet sometimes. Sure. And I was wondering how your training helped you or helps you think of stories and research them and write them. I've always been fascinated by, by science. One half of my brain is all, all 
geared towards science and medicine and, and animals. And then the other half is the twisted side of, you know, spin stories. And so, you know, I've got a very keen interest, not just in the biological sciences basis for being a veterinarian, but also, you know, physics and you know, uh, astronomy. You'll see all those in the various books. Uh, you know, I Have God deals more with astronomy. There's nanotech in other books. Uh, there's other genetic editing uh, questions that are risen in other books. So it's just my love of, of science that was my instant in, in, inspiration for writing these stories. When I wrote my first novel, I thought I was writing a science fiction novel. My first novel, Subterranean, has telepathic marsupial creatures that live underneath Antarctica. And my editor, when she bought the book, said, hey, you know, we're going to sell this as just a modern-day thriller. And I said, well, what about those telepathic marsupial creatures that are living underneath Antarctica? She said, well, you know, it's, you're, you set your story in modern times, and you have enough scientific basis for those telepathic marsupial creatures. Therefore, we're just going to pitch you as a as a thriller writer. So uh, I still lean on those that my love of science, not necessarily uh, veterinary medicine in particular, to 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 look for stories. But uh, you know, I can't escape my animals. You'll see a lot of animals in my books. You know, I've written books from the point of view of a military war dog in one book, and another book that was written from the point of view of a uh, a mixed breed Neanderthal and Western mountain gorilla that could sign language. Uh, in this book, we see points of views from Eve. Um, so I'm always looking for. My last book had points of view from various casts of a of a prehistoric wasp species. So, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Do you consider yourself a science fiction writer, even if you are not technically branded as one? Because, you know, a lot of your subject matter could easily be labeled science fiction. And I suppose maybe these labels are, are arbitrary. So how do you think of yourself? And they are very arbitrary. I mean, I think my stories, uh, you know, I read, grew up reading science fiction, fantasy, horror, uh, thrillers, military uh, fiction, and so, you know, I always, whenever I teach writing, I tell people you should write from the point of passion. You should write what you love to read. And unfortunately, I like to read everything. So you get everything in my books. You get a little bit of military fiction. You get a bit of historical. You get some romance. You have some strong science, science fiction vein to it. You have some fantastical elements to the stories. So I still think, yes, I do. I do think I'm writing science fiction, to be honest with you. Well, I do, too. You know, I grew up... Uh, Reading that, and I thought I was writing. My first two books was uh, my first book was uh, was Subterranean, which I thought was a science fiction novel, and my second novel was a, was a fantasy novel. So, yeah. Well, I agree, and I am grateful that you uh, have spent the time with me on this episode of New Books and Science Fiction. Well, thank you, Rob. I appreciate it. It's been a great deal of fun. You ask questions that nobody asked before, and I appreciate that. James Rollins is the author of Crucible, published in January by William Morrow. If you haven't signed up already, please subscribe to New Books in Science Fiction. That way you'll never miss an episode. And also consider leaving a review. Your reviews help others find us. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief and founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. And the editor is Leanne Wilson. And I'm Rob Wolf author of The Alternate Universe, visit me at robwolf.net or on Twitter at robwolfbooks. Thanks so much for listening.